Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of the award-winning podcast, Entrepreneurs on Fire, and you're listening to the Excelsior Journeys with George Soroy. Prepare to ignite. So would you say that that's kind of like the lightning bolt moment for you? And that's what I taught myself how to draw, was actually the Little Mermaid, drawing stills of Ariel. I've got better things to do tonight than die. jumped out of his chair and said, who the F is this? I remember walking out of the theater and saying, I'm going to write Halloween I'm rather impressed with your research. Rarely do people ask me about children in the corner. It doesn't have to be perfect, just do it. You know, throw some spaghetti against the wall. This is George Soroy saying to all of you, ever upward. Welcome back to Excelsior Journeys, part of the Once Upon a Podcast Network. This is George Soroy. Thank you so much for being here. And thank you so much for tuning in for over 250 episodes. We are now in season eight. It's been over five years that this show has been in existence. I have had so much fun with this, and I hope that you have too. And we got a really fun episode lined up for this week. One of the things that I am really happy to see a lot of is collaborations between between writers and different creatives to see what can come together when that happens. And we have a great example of that with my guests this week, uh, Dr. Chris Whaley, who is not only a, a pastor for over 35 years, but is also a novelist and a former professional wrestler. And we have, as our other guest, Mike McClaskey, who is a screenwriter, who is a former stunt and has been in the industry since the 1980s and has quite a bit of, of stories to share as well. And his connection with, with Chris has led, led the two of them to create the novel, M- Mr. President? Question mark. We got a whole lot to unpack about their work, their separate work, their work together, and the book that has resulted out of that. And it is my thrilled to introduce to you Dr. Chris Whaley and Mike McClaskey. How are you both doing today? Excellent. Excellent. Doing great. Doing great. Thanks for having us. And thank you so much for, for being here. Uh, for just a little bit of uh, behind the scenes. Um, I was run. Uh, I was uh, trying to put together my list of guests for this month, and uh, Chris and Mike were not only available but available at very short notice. And so I very much appreciate both of you taking the time to be here. Yeah. Hey, man, it's great to be with you, and you have quite a show, and it's made quite an impact. So we feel honored to be on your show. Yes, and we do. Thank you. And I feel honored to have you both on here. So so this is a win-win for everyone, everyone involved. And speaking of speaking of the win, I am really interested in hearing a little bit about the novel that the two of you put together called Mr. President. Just gotta make sure I put that upper lilt on there to make sure that question mark really gets shown. Tell us a little bit about this, because I understand, Chris, you you are a former professional wrestler yourself. Right. Actually, Mike and I both are former professional wrestlers. Mike and I got into wrestling in 1978. Oh, wow. I got out of wrestling in 88. Mike went a little bit longer, I think, than that. It was about uh, 91 or 92. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, we both both had some great years in there. Got to work against some unbelievable people. I got to work against The Undertaker, The Ultimate Warrior, wow. The Freebirds, uh, Bruiser Brody. Mike Mike got to work against – who all did you work against, Mike? But Blackjack Mulligan and oh, Gold, Gold Dust and uh, the guy that eventually became Tugboat or Earthquake. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a few other. Oh, uh, well, Bob Roop was, was in the ring with me there and Ox Baker and uh, Adrian oh, Street. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. We, were, we were both wow. fortunate. Yeah. Yep. Very fortunate. Oh, that's fabulous. Yeah. Uh, I, got, I, I got into wrestling. I was a sickly kid growing up mm-hmm. and constantly in and out of the hospital. And while growing up, I was skin and bones. So I couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. Eventually, mm-hmm. I found a great doctor who sent me over to a big clinic in Central Florida. And they found out that I was allergic to over 200 things. And oh my. I started, started taking these injections for allergies. And suddenly my immune system kicked in and started putting on weight and got in halfway decent shape. And Mike and I both answered the same ad to get into professional wrestling. And that's how we met. And even though I've been out of it since 1988, you never get it out of your blood and out of your system. And mm-hmm. when I, I wrote my first book, The Masked Saint, 
since that time, it's given me more and more opportunities to stay in the wrestling business because I, I go to autograph signings and things like that and wrestle cons and get to see a lot of the, the old guys and meet a lot of the old fans and the new fans. So it's been a win-win for me. That's great. That is great. And yeah, even even as a fan, someone who's been in just watching it since the 1980s, yeah, even as a fan, you never really get it out of your system. Even when you lose lose track of it over time, it's it's always it's always there. You're always going to have that some somewhat in your life. Well, that's that's where Chris and I both got our starts. Is we were both fans, both big fans down here in Florida. Championship wrestling in the 60s and 70s was the thing. It was the mm-hmm. best. Gordon Soley and mm-hmm. and everyone that that came through there. And I mean, you didn't miss an episode of Championship wrestling from Florida. And I'm, I went a little different route. I actually played baseball. I played college baseball for a couple of years. And then I got cut and I was looking for something to do. I was 220, 225 pounds. And like Chris said, we, we both saw the same ad. And the, it was in a trade magazine. I actually still have the ad, Chris. It's on the back of a little flyer sports magazine that you would find at the at the local grocery store. And we both went down and got trained. And the the unfortunate thing for both of us, and again, I came from baseball, where baseball, you start in uh, single A, you go to double A, then triple A, then maybe you make it to the bigs. So I thought that when we were getting trained, we were getting trained like at a single A level because it was a that we would have matches where there would be 100 people and and everything was on a smaller scale, which was fine. That's what we needed at the time. Mm-hmm. But then I thought, well, then eventually we'll get called up. Turns out that, again, back in the 70s when we started, wrestling was union, even mm-hmm. though they really didn't call it union. And the guys that were at the top were in the union, and everybody else was a scab. And and uh, they just did not take take kindly to us at all. There's there's horror stories about about what they did to guys like like Chris and me at the time that were independent They'd call us outlaws. They'd call us all kinds of stuff. And, and we were, we were blacklisted. And it wasn't until probably the late, mid to late eighties where they started opening the door because of cable TV. They Mm -hmm. needed, they needed bodies. They needed hundreds of guys at a show. So they would open the doors. But by then it was, by then it was pretty much too late for both of us. We had, we had already, we'd already had our share of, of injuries. Yeah. (laughs) You have, a, so, you have a short life. You have a short uh, shelf life in professional wrestling. So even even of the days of the territories where everyone was just kind of like running their own spot in in the country, like that that was still looked at as scab work. No, well today you probably have hundreds of wrestling organizations. Yeah, and a lot of the guys that you see on WWE or AEW were guys that were independents that just stood out. And so they get welcomed into those big ones. But in mm-hmm. our day, they had the 26 territories all across the, the U.S. You yeah. could work in one territory for a year and then go to mm-hmm. another territory, and they would go to other territories. Some guys stayed and stayed and stayed. But it, it was just... Chris, just, tell yeah. them what happened to you in Texas when you tried to get into, what was it? Uh, well, it was the Von Erichs. Yeah. Oh, WCCW? Yeah. 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 When I, when I got to, I went to seminary in Texas for three years. And so I was excited about going there that I'd get another opportunity to wrestle. I, I showed up and they wouldn't even give me the time of day. And I called a guy that trained Mike and I, the great Malenko. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he had two boys that we trained with, Jody and uh, Dean Malenko, and the man of a thousand holes, uh, Mike mm-hmm. and I. We, uh, we trained with them, worked against them. But I called Larry, the great Malenko, called him and told him what I was up against. And and he said, you need to talk to Bronco Lubitsch. That was, he was worked for the organization. So I went to a show one night. And when he was leaving the ring and coming back, I, I went up to him and I told him. And finally got a break and got the opportunity to, to work while I was there in Texas. But it was just very, very tight-lipped and not... You either had to know somebody or be kin to somebody to get in. Mm. Well, George, let me let me explain it to you this way, George. So let's say there are thirty podcasts in the world, yeah. and you're you're in that thirty. 
mm-hmm. Chris or I come to you and say, hey, George, we'd love to start a podcast. Can you help us? If you say yes, guess what? Guess who might be out? Mm-hmm. You. Yeah. And that was that was the same way back then. There were 30 guys in this organization, Florida, mm-hmm. Georgia, uh, wherever. The National Wrestling Alliance, right? You know. Yeah, there were 30 yeah. guys in this territory. So if, if Chris or I went to any one of them and said, hey, can you help us get in? Their response was no, because you may be better than me and I'm gonna, mm. I'd be the one to get kicked out. So it, it, the doors, the doors were literally slammed in our faces. And, and that was unfortunate because we didn't, yeah. we didn't know that. If, if I would have been told that on day one, I would have gone straight to Tampa and paid a couple thousand dollars and, and been trained there with them instead mm. of what we did. But it is what it is. Yeah. Wow. Wow. But, uh, but once you were able to, to compete, you know, over over there. What was that experience like when you actually like were able to get in the ring? Yeah. Go ahead, Mike. Oh, it was great. We were very appreciated. Now, not to not to give secrets away about the business, but mm-hmm. there are guys that are going to win and there are guys that are going to lose. And mm-hmm. typically, uh, speaking for myself, I was the guy that was was going to lose, and I didn't have a problem with that. You, you, the pay was the same, yeah. and and we would go in, and the guys that were being put over. We're so appreciative to have someone like Chris or myself that was that was good, reliable, not drunk, in yeah. shape, and, and knew what we were doing. That that after the match, they would they would come up to me and thank me. And I mean, here's a guy that's a legitimate star in whatever territory this is. And mm-hmm. after the match, he comes up and and thanks me. And I'm kind of like, well, okay. You're welcome. I was just doing my job, but yeah. but that that felt real good that that you were accepted. I don't know George if who Dusty Rhodes was. Oh, absolutely. Oh yeah. So American my, Dream. Yeah. My one one of my claim to fames is I was in the locker room, and again I was the guy that was going to lose. Uh, mm-hmm. I was up against the guy that would eventually become Tugboat. And oh, Dusty, Fred, uh, Fred Ottman. Fred Ottman. Yeah. A great guy. Great guy. Dusty goes over and gets Fred and brings him over to me, which is unusual because it's usually the other way around. Mm-hmm. And I'm lacing my boots up and Dusty introduces Fred to me and Dusty goes over the match. It's just a three minute match. Boom, boom, boom. This is what I want you to do to finish. And then Dusty puts his hand on my shoulder and looks at Fred and he says, Fred, do what this guy tells you to do. He knows what he's doing. And then wow. Dusty walked away. So it's things like that where, again, I'll speak for Chris, it's things like that that made it all worthwhile to us when we got the pat on the back for someone like Dusty or someone whoever, and when we got the thank you and the recognition, made it all worth its while. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yep, and uh, it was it was really cool to be in Texas and wrestling, and my dad, who was back in Florida, could watch it. My dad was a huge, huge wrestling fan, both Mike. Uh, Mike's dad and my dad, they were big wrestling fans, especially with us being in it. So it was just cool that dad could be back here in Florida and watch his son wrestle on TV. And that was before WWF and them taking off and everything. So, and you just, you just get the, one of the great things when Mike and I get together or get together with a bunch of other wrestlers, which we do, there's a thing called the, the Legends Luncheon it's hmm. over in Tampa. It's every other month. And you go over and there's a bunch of old guys like Mike and I who used to wrestle. Steve Kern, Ryan Blair. Oh, wow. Tugboat comes over sometimes. You have uh, Bugsy McGraw and all these guys. And, and you just sit there and eat lunch before the program and you tell stories about working against somebody or some guy that uh, gave you a potato in the ring and tell all these great stories. And, and that just, it makes it all worthwhile when you get to, uh, be with guys who've been in the business and been what been through what we've been through. That's yeah. great. And then what from all of this, all all this uh, different experience that you had, is that what really kind of prompted you to go ahead and write the novel? No, it didn't. It didn't necessarily prompt us. It it had a lot to do with the wrestling portion of the novel. So just just so the 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 novel is loosely based, and it was we started working on this in the late eighties. It's loosely based on a comedian from the sixties and seventies named Pat Paulson. Pat mm-hmm. used to run for president every four years, very deadpan, very monotone, flat comedian. 
but he actually gathered a following. People had yard signs, people had bumper stickers, people had t-shirts. And again, this is before TikTok, before social media. He would be on Johnny Carson Tonight Show. He would be on Rowan and Martin Laugh-In. He would be on Love Boat. Um, mm-hmm. Like I said, we just saw him on an old Carol Burnett rerun the other night. So we kind of took that and we said, well, that was in the 60s and 70s, and he was popular then. What if it happened now in the 90s and 2000s when we now have social media, where you have a comedian that will run for president every four years, really just to get rear ends in the seats of his comedy shows. Yeah. But then he picks a an unsuspecting celebrity every four years. And it just so happens that this year he picked the world heavyweight wrestling champion to be his running mate, That's which crazy. again, that came from the popularity of Hulk Hogan, the, the mid to late eighties. You couldn't open a magazine. You couldn't turn on a TV without seeing Hulk Hogan. Oh, yeah. I'm not I'm not just talking about the wrestling portion of it. I'm talking about selling vitamins, selling mm-hmm. this, selling that. I had on, the workout set when I was a kid. There, there so, you yeah. go. <laughs> Lunchbox. I mean, yep. so we took that and we said, OK, so here we have a comedian that every four years is going to run for president. And he kind of tricks this celebrity into being his running mate, who who is incredibly popular. And we just kind of rolled with it from that. So the, our, our wrestling background does play a lot into writing it. But uh, I mean, it's not like that. That's actually the, the wrestling portion of it is actually kind of a secondary to the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. That's great. It sounds like a lot of fun, too. Like the, oh, So uh, based on the events that happen. It, 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 it winds up being a really, really interesting read. I can't wait to, to read it myself. It sounds yeah. like a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, we live in a pretty screwed up world now, politically, very yeah. screwed up when you see yeah. some of the things that are going on. And uh, a long time ago, they would have said, there's no way this guy's going to be elected president. He He's not in the political field. He's an outsider. And an outsider would never get elected as president. <laughs> and then Donald Trump comes along. Yeah. A, a multimillionaire, a billionaire, and an outsider. Outsider. Yeah, yep. only been to Washington, I think, one time in his, his life. And then he gets elected president of the United States. So mm-hmm. you see, you see how Donald Trump turned Washington, D.C. upside down. Well, mm-hmm. when Timmy gets elected and when the, the world heavyweight champ becomes president, he turns Washington upside down. And it is a political comedy that will keep you in stitches. It is it is hilarious. It's I'm looking forward to reading it. Yeah, it's, it sounds like a, it sounds like a whole lot of fun there. Now, I'm I'm really kind of taken with with both of your backgrounds in writing as well. Mm-hmm. Because Chris, you start you you've been a pastor for thirty five years now, correct? Right, right. And so that's that's a lot of that's a lot of writing right there every yeah. week. Yeah. <laughs> so, what was it? What how what really kind of got you into into doing that? Well, I became a pastor in 1988, went to my first church. They they teach you a lot of things in seminary, but they don't teach you how to be a pastor. That's amazing. So you're learning on the job. And when I got to my first church, there were some bad things going on. I started with a, a young mom who uh, came into the sanctuary every Sunday. She was the last person in, be the first person out. Uh, she'd drop her kids off at the kids program and then come in. And on one particular Sunday, uh, she came in with sunglasses on, which was a little unusual in those days. Not this day, but it was in those days. Uh, after the service, I would stand at the front and shake hands with people. And on this particular day, she was the last person out. And when she came up to me, she took my hand with both of her hands and had her head down and tears were rolling down her cheeks. And I just lifted the sunglasses and she had two black eyes. Oh my. And it just really enraged me that, I mean, she was a petite little thing. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought of somebody beating up this petite little girl. And I asked her if it was her husband. And she said, yes. And mm-hmm. uh, I said, well, I'm going to go, go visit this guy. And she was like, oh, don't, he'll hurt you. And I said, I'm not really worried about it. So I went to his house and called him out and just called him a scumbag. And 
I said, any man that hits a woman is is a dirt bag, and you're obviously a bully, and bullies only pick on people that they know they can beat. So here I am. Let's see how you do against somebody who can fight back. And so we we danced in his front yard, and I got a lot of stress out of me, and it felt really good. Then I just started having episode after episode that happened like that. And I thought, this would make a great TV series. And so I wanted to write a book. I didn't think I could do it. My wife, you know, with the invention of the personal computer and the word processor, (laughs) one Saturday, I just sat down and started typing and I showed it to my wife and she said, oh, that's great. Keep going. So I wrote, it's called The Mass Saint and Each chapter is based upon something real that happened in my life, which made it easy to write. Mm -hmm. So the book came out and I I got some inquiries from movie people. Matter of fact, Kim Dawson, who was the executive producer of the very first three Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle movies. Golden Harvest, right? Yeah, he's in Orlando and he called me into his office and spent about a year with me and then suddenly just changed his mind one day and said, I'm not interested anymore. But during, during that year, I got to know several other people in the movie business and a uh, producer in Toronto, Canada flew down and met me at Disney world. Mm -hmm. And eventually he produced the movie, the mass saint, which came out in theaters in January of 16. And after being in theaters, it was on Netflix for three years, and now it's on Amazon Prime. And it just just kind of took off. And so uh, that's with that's with Roddy Piper, isn't it? Right. That's okay. I was like, I know, I know that name. I know that. And then all of a sudden, as soon as you said when it came out, I was like, oh, wait a minute. You know, like I remember seeing the, the trailer for that. Yeah, Roddy Piper's last movie. Yeah. Yeah, it was made in November. And then he died the next year, I think, like on July the 31st. Yeah. So it was it was a sad day seeing him pass. But he was not only a great wrestler, he was a great actor. Yes. If you IMDB him, you just see countless things. They live. Uh, they live was yeah. fabulous. It was fun. Yeah, I was watching an old Texas Ranger the other day with Chuck Norris, and there was Roddy Piper and mm-hmm. Texas Ranger. And so... It just really took off from there, and and then the the writing bug kind of bit me, and so I wrote. A, once once you write a book and it's made into a movie, it, it kind of spoils you. Yeah. So I I was thinking, what would have a good opportunity to be made into a movie? And you have all those Hallmark Christmas movies that my wife and I watch. Yeah. So I had a great idea for a Christmas story. So I wrote a Christmas story called Harold's Heavenly Christmas, mm-hmm. and that, and then. Mike and I started writing Mr. President and that's been more fun than I've ever had writing with oh, that's Mike. Great. That's great. And Mike, you've got some, some really great experience as well as a screenwriter. Yeah. And Chris kind of hit on it. it the, the easy thing is writing it. The hard thing is getting somebody to read it. Mm-hmm. I started back in the, in the mid eighties and Chris was talking about getting the first, um, a word processor, I used to actually have to hire someone, uh, a sister of a friend of mine, and she used to have to type because I would, I would longhand write everything on a, on a legal pad. And mm-hmm. then I would, I would give her 10, 15, 20 pages at a time and she would type them for me. And I still have those screenplays that I wrote that way. And, uh, and again, it, 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 it started out with a, with a commercial, writing a commercial for a, a chicken chain for the macho man, Randy Savage, which the owner of the chicken chain just loved it. And he said he had people on staff uh, to do this and they couldn't come up with something uh, like this. And that kind of, that kind of scared me, but, but pleased me at the same time. And then I started, I took that from a, a couple of commercials to a couple of TV shows to a couple of feature films. And, and all along, Chris has involvement in it in some way or another. We do some some Christian faith-based works, which I rely on him heavily for, for scripture and for advice on how a pastor would handle something. And then we do some athletic stuff again where we're we're that's right up right up our wheelhouse. So we can do that. And I love telling the story of one of the things that that we've written. Chris called me up on a Saturday afternoon and I had been out mowing mowing the yard. And this is 
this is 12, 13 years ago. And he said how there's all these movies about a white family that adopts a black kid, which mm-hmm. the blind side is the first one that comes into mind. Yeah. And he said, he said, what would, what, what do you think would happen if a black family adopted a white kid? And it was like the light bulb mm-hmm. going off. Yeah. And a hundred pages later, and we have a screenplay called tentatively called he's my rock. And, and that was, that was kicked around for some different things, but that's, that's kind of how we, we, if somebody, if, if we were to say to somebody, we're co-writers, we don't mm-hmm. sit next to each other at the same desk. And, yeah. and, and I hit one letter and he hits another letter. I type and he types and then I read and then he reads. And even, I don't know if he remembers, but even Harold's Heavenly Christmas, that started off as a 200 page email that you sent me. Do you remember that, Chris? Yeah. He sent me, he sent me, literally sent me a 200 page email and said, what do you think of this story? And two or three days later, I sent him back a 65 page word document. And I said, here you go. Here's, here's now your story. Cause I took this out and took that out and moved this here and com- combined that and just cleaned it up for him. Yeah. And, and that's his, that's his Harold's heavenly Christmas. And, and so. That's that's a tough question. If someone were to say to either one of us, how do you two write as co-writers? It's mm-hmm. kind of like we we don't, but we do. Yeah, we don't, so, but we do. So you yeah. kind of like hash out the story together. But yeah. then when but then you assign like different parts yeah. to each other yeah. to write first. Right. Chris is Chris is my my greatest fan besides Chris and my wife. I don't I don't think I'm funny because this is who I am. This is who I've been since I was a kid. I can remember sitting at the dinner table with my mom and my older brother and my dad and my mom, and I'm, I'm maybe nine years old, and my mom just going off on us. And then when she's done, she says, what do you think of that? And I look up at her and I say, I'm sorry, I wasn't listening to mom. What'd you say? <laughs> and, oh, yeah, yeah. And my dad fell over laughing, but my mom hit me with a shoe. And uh, so... <laughs> So for me, the things that I do, I, I'm, I'm doing them to get humor, but I'm not doing them because I think they're funny. My wife, the other day, I had her laughing in the car and she laughed for 45 minutes in the car. Wow. Chris, every time he reads, there's one part in the book where our star is getting an autograph of the wrestler. And I won't give it away, but every time Chris reads that, and he's had to have read it 200 times, mm-hmm. every time he reads it, he cracks up laughing. So right. when when I also say that we're co-writers, Chris is Chris is my fan and I'm Chris's fan. So yeah. so I know that I have someone in Chris that I can say, hey, look at this and let me know what you think. Yeah. And and he'll be honest. And, and nine times out of 10, he'll call me up and he's still laughing, which that's a good sign. That's, that's what I want. That's yeah, a great you know? sign. Yeah. Hey, George, can can I just take just a moment i, I got you gotta hear this story yeah mike, yeah mike was working on an italian movie down in miami was it yeah down in miami yeah he's working on this italian movie he's a stunt man they haven't called on him for anything and then one day this italian director says i need a stunt man i need a stunt man now mike you take it from there you gotta hear this story this is hilarious phil remind me Go ahead, Chris. Oh, well, I'll tell it. Yeah, Mike, you tell uh, it. <laughs> and he tells Mike, he said, I want you to get in the car, drive down oh, the yeah. road. Okay. Now okay. that you tell it. Okay. So I was a stunt double for this big Italian guy who actually was a, a, a star in Spaghetti Westerns years ago. Mm-hmm. And he says, we need you to, we need, and then, again, I'm, I'm green. The only thing I had done was, was wrestling. Yeah. I'm green to stunts. He says, we need you to get in the car and, uh, and drive the car around the block, go up on the curb, do this, do that, and then spin the car right up to the side of the building and, and get out. And, and he, he, I sat next to him, and he did it. We, we drove down the street. We went up on the curb. We almost hit some people. The camera was following us the whole time. Go around the curb, spin the tires, come back around, spin the tires, knock over a garbage can, slide up to the building and get out. He goes, that's what I want you to do. I said, great, no problem. So I get in the car with my co-star and we take off. Camera's right behind us the whole time. We go flying down the street. I almost hit some people, go up on the curb, knock over a garbage can, spin around the corner, slide the car right up to the side of the building. We both get out and run around. The director says, cut, cut. 
And the co-star, he comes up and pats me on the back. He says, that was incredible. He says, how long have you been doing stunts like that? And I said, well, it's 1.15 now. And <laughs> we, we got in the car at 1.07. So I, I don't know, what, seven minutes? <laughs> seven minutes? And he's just looking at me. And I'm like, no, that was that was it. That was my first time doing that. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Talk about trial by fire. That's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I had forgotten about that. I was wrestling the uh, in Dallas, Texas, and uh, it was a Friday night. And when it was when it was Friday, my wife and my girls would go to the matches. Right. And uh, after I got through wrestling, we would do a Friday night fun night. Mm-hmm. And so on this particular night, I wrestled. I'm back in the dressing room. I'm taking my boots off, and the promoter came in and said, "Hey, I need somebody to work again." And was saying, "Against who?" And it was Mark Calloway, the Undertaker. Oh wow! I said, "Yeah, I'll, I'll do it. I'll do it." I, I knew he was going to be a big star. Yeah. And uh, so I had to get the referee to go out and tell my wife and kids not to go to the car that I was going to wrestle again. Mm-hmm. And I, I told the referee, I said, "Don't tell them who I'm working against." And he said, "Okay, okay." Mm-hmm. So anyway, he comes back in. He said, "I found your wife and girls, and they're going to wait." And I said, "You didn't tell them who I'm working against." And he said, "No, no, I didn't." Okay. So time for the match came and. Of course, I, I wasn't the star, so I'm in the ring, and I'm looking. I found my girls. There they are. And then the lights went down, and the hideous music came on, Yeah. and Mark Calloway walked through, and I had found my girls. And as soon as they saw this guy walk through, both my little girls started crying. And, oh, and I looked at my wife, and her eyes got real big, and then she reached over and grabbed her purse and started going through the purse. And anyway, the match started. We won about 20 minutes. It was a great match. And anyway, after that, we're driving back to Fort Worth that night. And I look up in the rearview mirror and both my little girls were sound asleep. I looked over at my wife and I said, right before that match started, I noticed you grabbed your purse and you're going through your purse. What was that about? And she thought for a moment and she said, oh, I was looking for the checkbook to make sure you'd paid the insurance. (laughs) Wow. She had a lot of confidence in me. A lot of confidence. Oh, yeah. So, Chris, with someone of stature, like The Undertaker, it's go- the match would go for like two minutes or something like that, and then that's it. So you went for 20 minutes? Yeah, yeah. It was a 20-minute match. It was great. Of course, that was that was before. It wasn't was, televised, though, right? Yeah, like it, yeah no. It was, it yeah. was a dark match. It was before he became The Undertaker. He went to WWF, and Vince made him The Undertaker. But yeah. When he was there in Texas, he wrestled under about four or five different names. I don't know, Mike. What do you wrestle? Like? Mean Mark. Mean it was Mark, Mean Mark Callis. Callis. Yeah. Mean Mark yeah. Callis days. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It was in those days. So. And George, it was it was nothing for us to to wrestle 20, 30, 40 minutes. Uh, you had a you had a window that you had to fill either seven to ten or or eight to eleven or whatever. And it was nothing to uh, the, the earlier matches usually were shorter, and then the mid matches were longer, and then the the final matches were were twenty, thirty, forty minutes, and th- and that was that was nothing. Yeah. yeah. So no, so in other words, it was really good to have you guys around because you guys were like were that dependable. Yeah. yeah. So that uh, you could you could work out like a match that that of that length that's terrific i have a i have a similar story not quite as it doesn't have uh, the caliber but i was wrestling in tampa for mike graham and steve kern Mm -hmm. and they used to do two tv tapings a night but but the guys that would lost would lose like me they only had them wrestle in one of the two tapings uh, because they didn't want to overexpose them so i had wrestled in the earlier taping and I, I hung around like Chris. We we would hang around. I still had my gear on. And Steve Kern comes up to me during the second taping. And he says, someone didn't show up. Would you mind wrestling again? And he was very almost apologetic in asking me. And I mm. said, Steve, I, I work for you. You have me from the time that I get here to the time that I leave. If you want me to wrestle every single match, I'll be more than happy to because you're you're paying me. That's mm-hmm. what I'm that's what I'm here for. You paid me. When I come, I'm here. I work for you. And yeah. then, then when I leave, I'm, I'm done working for you. And he says, well, you're going to have to lose again. And I said, again, you're, you're paying me, right? He said, right. yeah. I said, I don't, I don't have a problem. Just tell me who, tell me who you want. So mm-hmm. it was Chris, Chris and I honestly were a, a little bit different breed. Mm-hmm. I don't want to say 
because of intelligence, but, but, but Chris and I are college educated and businessmen. And a lot of the guys that, that were wrestling, especially back then, were not college educated, not businessmen. They were bar fighters and, and they, they lacked some common sense and you know, some common decency sometimes. And, but Chris and I went into it as a business. It was a business. You hired us to do something and, and we showed up. We showed up in shape. We showed up on time. We showed up sober. Again, back to Steve Kern, he said, you're wrestling this guy tonight. And I looked across the dressing room and literally there was a guy sitting in a chair drinking a beer and smoking a cigarette. And I said mm. to Steve, I said, Steve, no offense, but I'd, I'd rather not. I said, can you find someone else for me to wrestle? Because again, I'm, I'm professional. Yeah. So you want me to go against someone that I view as unprofessional? I, mm. I'm not going to do it. And Smart. if he would have, well, yeah. yeah, if he would have said, no, there's no other choice, but he understood and he said, no, no problem. And he found someone else for me to, to wrestle. But again, that's, and that's not uncommon. I mean, Chris, Chris can, Chris can also tell you stories of, of unprofessional uh, people in the business. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I heard a, I heard an interview with Hulk Hogan and Theo Vaughn and Hogan was telling him, he said, and it's a true story. He said every year, you might have 10 football players that die. You might have 10 or 12 basketball players who die or five hockey players who die. But every year, 350 professional wrestlers. Wow. I mean, there's all these wrestling organizations all over the place, plus guys that's been in the business. So a lot of those guys that just don't take care of themselves, you, you get these guys that make this enormous amount of money Mm-hmm. And when they get they get out of wrestling, they're broke. They don't yeah. have a pot to pee in or a window to throw it out of because of the choices that they make. And Mike and I were just completely different. We wanted to live a long time. We wanted to take care of our families. We wanted to do the right thing business-wise and financial-wise. And so here we are at the end of our our lives and we're, we're, we're doing good and we can make it and not worried about the finances and things like that. But a lot of those guys just, it's just pretty sad. Yeah. It's very sad. Yeah. See what yeah. they do with their lives. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they've been saying that the road really, really messes with, with people's lives and it's, it just kind of allows so much room for, anything that's non-productive and destructive to come into their lives. So that's the fact that, that both of you are able to carry yourselves in a really professional manner and not only be able to do that, but to, but to parlay everything that you've done, your experiences into these other venues, into writing, into filmmaking, into, into this new novel. It's it's really it's really something special, and I'm glad to see that both of you have been able to really make something positive out of out of this because we never really hear that much in terms of positive stories uh, because of this because because it's so much it's so much easier to look for the bad yeah it's so much easier to look for the negative mm-hmm. so the fact that you not only have these positive experiences but can share them here. Uh, that's something that I truly appreciate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. Thank yeah. you. What would you say to the both of you for, for others who are either, I don't, I don't, I don't want to say like looking to get into wrestling because wrestling has, if, has changed in so, over so many years, but at the same time, I would actually like to hear that. I would like to hear like, cause there are like some basic fundamentals that mm-hmm. stay over throughout the decades what's something that you would say as a means of like for someone who is looking to get into get into that field get into that industry what's something that you would say like as as veterans of this what would you recommend that they focus on you want me to go first mike or you want to well i'll go ahead and jump in i i always preach to younger people um i i still go to some training facilities and work with some of the younger wrestlers and I tell them uh, this this goes for entertainment, because what we did and Chris will agree, what we did was we entertained um, mm-hmm. whether it was uh, five people or 
5,000 people. That's what we were out there for is we were out there to entertain them. We got a, We had a kick out of it too, but, but that was really what it boiled down to was entertainment. So I tell them, I say, look, if you want to be in this entertainment thing, there's a couple of things that you, that you need and, and that you need to understand. And I say, one of them is you have to have a little bit of money. And the young kids will say, what do you mean? I, why would I have to have money? And I'd say, well, George, guess what? George, I have a wrestling show that's in Topeka, Kansas. Tomorrow night, I need you to, to, to get a, buy your own airplane ticket, fly there, get your own motel room, get a car to take you to the show, then go back to your motel room, then fly back to wherever it is you're from, and then I'll pay you. Mm. And they go, well, I don't have money to do that. And I go, there you go. Yeah. There you go. I said, and how do you get money? You have a day job. You have a career. You have something that you do that you can have some money. Chris and I used to always have, we had a job. So when we had to wrestle Friday night or Saturday night or Sunday night, we could afford to get in the car or, or get an airplane ticket and go and get a motel room if we had to. So I always say to them, you have to have a little bit of money behind you. You have to be able to buy your boots, buy your tights, buy your, 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 your garments, whatever it is that the entertainment is that you in, you have to be able to have some money to buy it. So you need to, you need to have some money behind you and you need mm-hmm. to know someone. If, if St- Sylvester Stallone's kid tomorrow said, I want to write a book and I want to have a movie made of it, what do you think will happen, George? Well, he, he definitely will have the, the, the doors Just open like for that. him. Just yeah. like that, it'll get done. Mm-hmm. Just like that. Chris or I, hey, I want to write a book. I want to make a movie. <laughs> Crickets. Crickets. Because we don't know anybody. Mm-hmm. So I tell him, I say, you, know, you have to have some money and you have to know somebody. Now, I'm not talking about that I'm just talking about you have to know Chris or myself. Chris could actually, if somebody wanted to wrestle, Chris could get them into a wrestling show in Orlando. They they have wrestling shows at Chris's church from time to time. Chris could get them into there. If they wanted to to do some writing, Chris or I could help them with some writing. We could introduce them to publishers. So you have to have a little bit of money and you have to know somebody. And those are those are unfortunate things. But when we started out in the wrestling business, guess what? We didn't know anybody. Mm-hmm. So we didn't have anybody up from us that we could call and say, hey, can you can you open a door for us? Mm-hmm. No. And and those doors got got shut right in our faces. Mm-hmm. Well, I I get to do book signings and and autograph signings and things like that. And I speak at churches and speak at events and stuff. And inevitably, every time I do that, someone will come up who wants to get into professional wrestling. And this is what I always say to them. I say, you have a better possibility of being abducted by a Lebanese terrorist on February the 30th than you do. (laughs) of getting into professional wrestling. Sure, you can go to one of the hundreds of independent organizations. I mean, there's guys all over the place that will charge you $1,500 to $2,500 to teach you to wrestle. Mm-hmm. And you might wrestle in front of 50 people or 100 people or whatever like that. But you're not going to, just like Mike said, you're not going to get in the WWE. You're not going to get an AEW or TNA mm-hmm. impact. Uh, unless somebody or you can get a, a video of you working and you better be an unbelievable worker. Yeah. Or th- they're going to watch about 30 seconds of that and say, Pfft. and so you better do something that catches their eye. So it's just a, one of the most difficult things in the world to get into mm-hmm. uh, professional wrestling on a high level like that. Yeah. You can get in on a low level. And then I, I, I tell them exactly what Mike says, too. There's, I, I watch some of these independent shows, and you got guys in the ring with tennis shoes on and gym shorts and a tank top. you got to look mm. the part. Those boots are not cheap. I wrestled yeah. at the age of 68 last year. Mike and I worked against each other Wow! at, at the age of 68. And Mike's not too much younger than I am. <clears throat> and all my stuff um, – the, the Hall of Fame asked for my boots and stuff a long time ago. And so I gave all my wrestling stuff away to them and I had to buy new boots. They were over 400 bucks. And then I had to get tights 
that was 50 bucks, the tights and the, 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 the other stuff that you wear. So you, you better have a little bit of money if you're going to get into wrestling and at least look the part. Don't look like a geek when you're in the ring. Look yeah. like a professional wrestler. Yeah. And when it comes to um, collaborating with someone else to put together a piece of work like a book, like a novel, what is it that you would recommend that uh, they do on that level? Well, you got to have something unique. I mean, there's there's no idea that hasn't been thought of, mm-hmm. very rare, and there's every storyline is just reworked. So you you've got to have something unique to bring to the table to write. Just like you're you're amazing with that gladiatorial combat, combat league. That, yeah. that, that's, that's amazing. Unique. That's yeah. unique. Nobody's ever thought of that before. And nobody has ever thought of uh, doing a, a book about a black family that gets a white kid. You know, how does that look? So yeah. you got to have something unique to bring to the table. And uh, you, you you better have the skin of a rhinoceros. How many times have you been told no, George? I've ha- I've had my share. I've, yeah. had, I've had my share of people that have an agent that uh, looked at th- this story and granted this was back in the 2002 iteration. So that's a, that's a version that I would not ever show anyone, but yeah. it was, but they, the guy basically just said as a recommendation that I self publish because yeah. no one else is going to go for it. Right. So, right. yeah. And getting, getting a literary agent is about as difficult as trying to do dental work on your own self. It, yeah. it just, all yeah. of it, just very difficult. And so you better, you better learn when people say no, it just means that there's somebody else there that's going to say yes. So yep. you don't let no defeat you. You mm-hmm. just keep going, even though you hear no. Yeah. And, um, years, years ago, I sent a manuscript to a literary agent. This was back when you would actually mail things mm-hmm. and I didn't hear anything. So a couple of weeks went by and I called him up and he actually answered the phone and I, I said, I'm just following up on the manuscript that I sent you. And he said, did I ask you to send me a manuscript? And he, and he said it in that tone. Did I ask you to send me a manuscript? And I said, no, but I, I, I sent it to you with the hopes that you could read it. He said, well, if I didn't ask you to send me a manuscript and you sent me one, I put it in the garbage. Click. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh. Okay. Like Chris just said, tough skin. You, you pick up. And one thing that, that we didn't hit on that, we aren't that up on is social media now. So the other thing that I do tell young people, I have a, a young fella that I mentor in in movies. Uh, I help him write. I've written some shorts for him and, and helped him produce some things. And he's doing it all himself and he's putting it out on social media. And that, so if, if, if you were to say to me, what's the one thing I would tell a younger person today about the entertainment, any type of entertainment, I would say, Try and do it on your own first. Mm-hmm. Try and develop a following with the social media. Try and get a try and get people behind you. Twenty thousand likes or whatever, mm-hmm. and then maybe someone then will see it. It blows my mind when when we 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 watch very little TV, but we'll watch TV and hear some woman that they're talking about is a social media star and she's worth forty two million dollars. And I'm kind of like, what wow. do you? Yeah. yeah, how? What do you? What do you do? Do you? Do you? Uh, I, I don't know. Do you let uh, a cat lick butter off your forehead? I don't. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, what are you doing? Because I want to sign up. I right. Wanna, I want a piece of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Here, here, kitty. Here, kitty, kitty. Come on. <laughs> I get that dog of mine to, to. I don't know. I don't. I don't get that. That completely blows my mind. One yeah. of the things we do watch is Dancing with the Stars, which we love, and the girl that won it is a social media star. I, I don't, I don't know who she is. She yeah. could knock, she could knock on my door, and I, I say, no, I, I don't want any. I don't, I don't know what you're selling, but I don't want any. I don't know who you are. <laughs> but again, she's, she's worth tens of millions of dollars. I, I just, I don't get mm-hmm. it. I yeah. don't get it. But that, that's what I would tell the young people is, get that, dive into that, and get that following. Even if you wanted to wrestle, go out in your backyard with your neighbor. And mm-hmm. start wrestling in your backyard and post it on TikTok, post it on Instagram, post it on Facebook. I, I don't know. Excellent. 
Excellent. And uh, speaking of social media, how can my listeners find you both on social media? You can go to my website, which is www.themask, that's M-A-S-K-E-D, saint, themasksaint.com. Mike and I have a, <clears throat> excuse me, we have a website for Mr. President. It's called mrpresidentbook.com. Mm-hmm. And all of our contact information. That's another thing, too. You know how difficult it is to get up with some people that you want to interview mm-hmm. or some people you want to maybe ask them to collaborate with something that you're doing. You, you, you can't find contact information. Mike and I, we hate that. So mm-hmm. we've got our email, our personal email, and our cell phone numbers on our website, mrpresidentbook.com. So we love talking. We love hearing feedback on the book, and uh, we're easy to get in touch with. Excellent. Excellent. And, Mike, where can we find you? Hiding under a rock somewhere. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Chris has 5,000 followers. I have maybe two, and I think one of them is my wife, maybe. I don't even know if she follows me. Maybe. (laughs) Yeah, maybe. I think I had to make a a fake page just so I could follow myself, just so I feel like I had somebody. Oh, I I was so talking on that. I, I remember opening up my Facebook account. I don't know how many years ago that was, but I was so excited when I got one friend. And I mm. called my daughter and I said, you're not going to believe it. I have one friend. And she says, who is it? And I said, some guy named Mark. And she goes, yes, Mark Zuckerberg. He he friends everybody because he owns the business. I go, oh, well, okay. But I got one friend. Yeah, I'm, I'm not I'm, I'm not that big. Again, like Chris said, you go to uh, Mr. President Book. Dot com. You can find out my email address, my, my cell phone number. Don't call me after 10. I won't answer it. But we, we love to hear from people. We, we love to talk to people. We think that uh, we think that that's well, again, Chris is a uh, do you like talking to people, Chris? I'm sorry. How long have you been a pastor? 35 years. Yeah. If you didn't like talking to people, you wouldn't have gone into the ministry. So we we like talking to people and we always, always look for an opportunity to come and talk to people. Excellent. Excellent. And this has been just a wonderful experience getting to getting to chat with both of you about the book, about your both of your your histories in in so many different fields. I am just so excited that we had this chance to to learn more and more about you, about what you do, what you offer. And I am just really excited for for the future for both of you. And I hope that all of you are really taking what Chris and Mike are saying to heart, because when it comes to whatever field you want to go in, everything that they're saying matches what that field is. You have to make a name for yourself. You have to be professional in what it is that you do. You have to look the part. You have to know exactly what it is that you want to do. You have to have some seed money to get yourself started. Whatever field it is, whatever it is, you have to put everything you have into it. You have to know exactly what it is that you want to do. You have to go forward with it. Do not let anything stop you because this is the year that you're going to make things happen. I know it. These guys know it. So for Dr. Chris Whaley and Mike McClaskey, this is George Soroy saying to all of you, Ever Upward, and I will see you next week. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Excelsior Journeys. I hope it was both inspiring and entertaining. Special thanks to Zach Comtois for providing new music for the intro and outro. Please take a moment to leave a rate and review on Apple Podcasts. And if you enjoy the show, please share it with your friends and subscribe to your platform of choice by going to he'sgotit.com slash podcasts. While there, you can also fill out the application to be a guest, inquire about sponsorship opportunities, and click on the Buy Me a Coffee link if you wish to give your support to the show. All interaction is very much appreciated. If you have a question, comment, or suggestion for the show, please direct it to george at he'sgotit.com.